0: Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK, brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamowski talk with Stanley Zale, Principal Consultant at Hill & Company.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria gamelsky Editor-in-Chief of JCK and JCKonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles, and I'm with
2: Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and JCKonline.com, calling in from New York City. How you doing?
1: Doing good. Feeling a little more awake this week. I don't know, I felt like last week, and of course we're recording this in the second week of January, you know, right back after the new year, felt a little not quite ready for the barrage of emails, but I think I'm (laughs) finally sort of back in the swing of things. What about you?
2: I'm okay. You know, somebody from California who I won't name was mocking the New York City weather because it is getting kind of cold. It hasn't I don't think it's officially snowed, but he was uh, mentioning how much better the weather is in California, so (laughs) I assume that's what you're finding.
1: Yes, it's quite chilly here, but yes, I I must say we're sunny, it's nice to be outdoors, although it feels like January, at least California January. Is it weird that it hasn't snowed?
2: Yeah, and I think it didn't, I think it barely snowed last year, so it's, yeah, it is getting a little odd, because it's nice to have at least one snowfall a year, just because, you know, it looks nice, and it's fun to play around in, so.
1: And it just feels right, right? I mean, it's. It's just, yeah,
2: it's winter. You know, you want to, you want a little snow. You know, it doesn't have to be like uh, a million snowstorms, but
1: uh, no, no. Speaking of weather, so as when this episode is airing, as people are listening, I am returning to Miami. So
2: wow, man, geez.
1: I'm only drawn to the warm weather spots. Can yeah, blame me. Yeah, um, make sense. The Platinum Guild is having a pretty exciting one-day course on platinum. I'm not really sure what's in store for me exactly, but I do think there might be a little bench work or some sort of experience with actually working with platinum. I'm very excited because I don't, you know, you learn a lot about different metals and and properties and gemstones, but I've never actually sat at a bench and felt what platinum actually feels like in its raw form. So I I anticipate I will get a little glimpse of that and I will report back. So I'm, I'm excited. Excited to have a very quick two night escape. And then of course the Tucson Gem shows are coming up. So that's all on my agenda. I'd like to welcome our guest today. He's someone that um, has a very illustrious name and an illustrious history in this business. When you hear it, you will most likely know him. He spent many, many years as Stellar's VP of Diamonds and Gemstone Procurement. And when you hear his name, you'll understand that this is uh, kind of one of our industry's most illustrious names and, and something that carries quite a bit of legacy in this business to this day. Stanley Zale, who's now a principal consultant at Hill & Company, and we thought would be a great person to start kind of this New Year conversation about where the industry has come through the holiday and where it's going this year. So Stanley, welcome. It's so, so nice to have you.
3: Thank you. I'm I'm thrilled to be here.
1: So before the um before we kicked off we were talking you're in Chicago these days is that right?
3: That is correct. Yes.
1: From Lafayette to uh to Chicago is a pretty big Lafayette of course being the headquarters of Stuller. Yes. Cuz you've been with Hill now is it about 6 or 7 months?
3: Yeah, about that. We moved last summer uh, in July and so the weather was beautiful and it's still beautiful now but it's a bit colder than it was then and a bit chillier than it is in Lafayette right now, no doubt.
1: Yeah, well an exciting change for you after so many yes. years with Stellar. This is this is exciting. Well, we have lots and lots of questions for you, but because we wanted to kind of cut to the chase and we know you've got a really bird's eye view of the business with Hill & Company, we'd love to hear your take and what you're hearing about Holiday 23, what it was like for a lot of retailers and what that might spell for, for the new year.
3: Well, what I've been hearing is moderate growth. You know, some people still maybe a little bit disappointed. I think the context is the tremendous growth that the industry saw over the last few years. And that if you really want to maybe right-size where we're at today is to really go back and look at how the industry performed in 2019, let's say before COVID and before we had really some spectacular years.
2: And is it just,
3: do you think it's the end
2: of COVID that's caused this kind of moderate growth or some people are talking about jewelry fatigue that we had so many good years that, that perhaps people aren't that interested in jewelry or is there anything that you kind of can put your finger on that you think has perhaps led to this holiday being a little disappointing for some people?
3: I think that the results were so strong during COVID and I don't know if I used the word fatigue or not but there was maybe excessive growth and I think it's just the industry kind of getting back towards normal Point of what the natural evolution would have been from 2019. So I guess really just kind of like right sizing and getting back to where it would have been anyway.
1: And of course, we're back to competing with travel and cruises. And so that makes sense. Yeah. I've, I've also heard, Stanley, much, much what you said, just a general right sizing back to normal, which, you know, you can't help but feel a little disappointing after the spectacular years we saw in 21 and 22. So I guess it's just going to be a matter of of another year or two of feeling this normalcy before we, you know, just see it not as disappointing, but just as kind of, you know, steady business.
3: I, I think so. And, and look, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> so, and <laughs> there's the more fun in the future. I'm optimistic.
1: Yeah. You know, you've had such a, just with giving your family in the name, and we'll we'll get into that for people who may not know that you are related to the founder of Zales, in fact, your grandfather. So let's let's go back. Tell us about your your background, where you grew up and how you really entered the business what you learned of it as as a kid and how it evolved
3: so rewind the clock 100 years march 1924 my grandfather morris mb zale opened the first zales jeweler store in wichita falls texas how we ended up in wichita falls that's going to be a whole nother topic But my father, Marvin, was in charge of Zales' New York office. So the company was based in Texas. Our family was in New York. The New York office is where merchandising happened and manufacturing, jewelry manufacturing, and diamond manufacturing. Zales began cutting diamonds from the rough in the 1950s and became a De Beers site holder in the 1960s, the late 1960s. So when I was... I don't know, 14 or so years old. My father said to me, my grandfather, they said, Hey, if you want to learn the diamond business, we'll teach you the diamond business if you're interested in that as a career path. So I said, Sure, I'm interested. <laughs> And so on school vacations, summer vacations, I'd be in the New York office learning with a loop and a tweezer, 300 diamonds to the carrot, the smallest possible diamonds that Zales was dealing with and testing my dexterity with a tweezer. But as I got a little bit older, probably when I was about 17, I started learning diamonds as a sawyer, which is one of the first steps in diamond production. And Zales had a sawing factory in its office at 450 West 33rd Street, and I learned from some of the best there. And so learning diamonds from that aspect, I was learning rough, how to take a piece of rough and understand how to maximize the yield, therefore the value of the polished diamonds that came from that rough diamond. So it was a great education and a great way to start learning about diamonds.
2: And were you surrounded by the business at home? Like, was it weird to you? I mean, like, so I have a last name that's like associated with like a horror movie. Okay, Bates, tell, but... <laughs> Was it weird for you to like see the family name, you know, when you were just driving around? And was it something that was kind of a big preoccupation for you growing up? Well,
3: I, I don't know if it was. Look, it, it's it was my life. It's what I knew. Our life was surrounded buy this. Now, most of my family was in Texas, but we would see each other at family events. And yeah, it was something that we talked about. Uh, My mother's family, just interestingly, my mother's from Brooklyn, was in the lumber business. And so we had grandma, grandpa lumber and grandma, grandpa jewelry. And (laughs) that was just life.
2: And your uncle just wrote a book about your grandfather called Nobody Gets Hurt at the Office, which is a story of him and also, I guess, the story of the larger Zale Corporation. You want to, first of all, explain that title and your reaction to the book? Did you learn anything really interesting?
3: Well, the title came from, uh, there was a couple of incidents that my uncle Donald talks about where some employees over the weekend, someone I maybe fell and got hurt and they couldn't get to work uh, for those few days. And so my grandfather, <laughs> paraphrasing, you "No, know, if you would just come to work <laughs> and just be at work, you won't get hurt. And then you could be at work every day. Nobody gets hurt at the office. So, you know, he was focused on business uh, and that was a major component of his success. So the impetus for my uncle Donald to write the book is that next month represents one you- 100 years since the first store was opened, and he did a great job of really capturing, first, the immigrant experience of people coming to America in the early part of the 20th century from Eastern Europe, making their way to New York, making their way to Texas, where there was the oil boom and opportunities for watchmakers because the trains had to run on time and you had to be reliant on reliable timekeeping instruments. And so there were opportunities there and there was a, an immigrant wave that went down to that part of the country. It's a great story. It's, it's really, I think, probably the, the ultimate American success story. The immigrants coming here, seeing opportunity and capitalizing on what was presented to them.
2: So you started working for the family business and then had your career
3: progress. What was really interesting about it, Zales, as I said, was a De DeBeer sideholder. And we had an interesting Great initiative with two other New York based site holders, one Louis Glick Company and the other Premier Gem, headed by a gentleman named Marvin Samuels. And so we Collaborated together on the site, pooling our buying power, which created opportunities to buy special larger rough diamonds, which was a great business to be in. So I was at the site for sale every five weeks and had the opportunity to sit next to Marvin Samuels looking at the rough. And Marvin, an expert's expert at Rough Diamond. So to have the opportunity to sit with Marvin, learn from him was spectacular. So I I am very fortunate in so many ways, and that's just one of them. What working for Zales doesn't teach you is kind of the rough and tumble of 47th Street. There's some hard knocks that you experience there, but as things evolved, I went to work for for Mr. Glick, for Louis Glick, which again was a great opportunity, first of the high end of the market with great coworkers. There was a spectacular team, great group of customers. I met so many people in the industry It helped me branch out from being insulated, if you will, within the Zales, you know, workspace to really get out in the industry much more than I had the opportunity to be before.
1: What decade was this?
3: It was in the mid 90s. And so, in fact, as things were started, what he wanted me to do was move to Bangkok for <laughs> him, open up a sales office there. And within a few months, business in Southeast Asia just started to turn down a bit. And he decided he was not going to open an office there and focus on the American market. And we really hit things just right as the economy started to boom in the late 90s. So was there for uh, a number of years and ultimately was hired by Stoller in London. Lafayette, Louisiana, that was in 2006. I was there for 17 years. On the one hand, yeah, it's a big move for a guy from the Northeast, from New York, to move to Lafayette, Louisiana. It's different in more ways than you can imagine. But again, the opportunity to work with industry experts very fortunate to really just keep learning and that's one of the things i love about this business the teachers that you meet and the opportunity to expand your knowledge base in your education
1: well you stayed 17 years so obviously in general it sounds like it was a great tenure a great relationship yes yes
0: This podcast is brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. The De Beers Institute of Diamonds mission is to grow and strengthen consumer confidence by providing integrity across the natural diamond industry, offering unrivaled diamond grading and testing exclusively for natural untreated diamonds. The De Beers Institute of Diamonds provides diamond chairs with confidence in a report of each diamond's four C's. Every diamond graded at De Beers Institute of Diamonds is also given a unique inscription number, allowing the diamond's details to be tracked and viewed on their website. Visit institute.debeers.com to learn more and register for their grading services
1: love to go back a little bit and hear your thoughts on why your grandfather's business founded nearly 100 years ago. You said March this year will mark the centennial. How did that happen? How did he build a business that continues? We, we speak to jewelry retailers all the time with family histories in this business, and none of them are sales. So,
3: Well, his his innovation, and he wasn't the only one that did this, but his innovation was selling on credit. You know, back then jewelry was really something only for the carriage trade and the average worker didn't have the opportunity to buy jewelry because they didn't have the money to do it. So by offering credit, it created new markets. Another thing my grandfather brought to the table was a forward-looking attitude toward business. And as there were opportunities to expand the business, open up a new store in a new market like Tulsa, Oklahoma, or places like San Antonio, Texas, then he saw the opportunity and he jumped on it. Uh, my my dad, who was born in 1930, would talk about spending a year in Antwerp in 1948. So he was 18 years old and Zales was 24 years old, but my grandfather was already sourcing diamonds in that part of the world, which you know, wasn't as easily accomplished then as it is now, and certainly not right after the war. But You know, forward-looking, looking looking for new ways, innovative ways to do the business, to grow the business, and just operate a little bit differently.
2: And, you know, at some point, your family did sell the business to, uh, I believe it was People's Jewelers uh, in the late 80s or early 90s. I I forgot that. In 1986, right. And there was bankruptcies, and then there's been a subsequent purchase by Signet. Do you think the company lost its way at some point? Is it just a matter of it didn't have that kind of guiding light that your grandfather was?
3: Well, look, I think an easy way to analyze it for me is to understand that when Peoples bought the company, it was in the mid 80s and it was a leveraged buyout, which meant that Zale Corporation borrowed money to buy itself. The debt was put on Zale Corporation to buy all the stock. The company was traded on the New York Stock Exchange then. So you had this business that now Peoples was controlling, but all that debt was now on the company. So they had interest payments for these high yield debt instruments that they took on. So in order to save money on overhead and pay that interest, they had to cut back on some overhead. And what they focused on was all of that internal manufacturing capabilities that Zales was vertically integrated, cutting its own diamonds, manufacturing its own jewelry. So by eliminating those expenses superficially, it looked like a money saver because now we've cut out overhead costs. The flip side of that is your cost of goods goes up. So now your product is costing you more. You're paying interest on debt. And inevitably, the company went bankrupt. So unfortunate to see that, but I, I think they're in good hands today. Uh, the signet management is strong. Gene Drosos is probably as good as it gets. And so I'm, I'm happy to see where they are, they're at today. And There aren't many American retail institutions that are 100 years old, so it's really wonderful to see it. Now, when I think about us as a family selling the business in the 1980s and understanding the the dynamic of a family business is not always easy. And when you're involved in a for-profit enterprise, it can even create some divisions in the family. What happened to us after the company was sold, our family business became our family charitable foundation. The MB and Edna Zell Foundation, founded by my grandparents in the early 1950s. So here we are today, over 70 years later, and we have the fourth generation of our family beginning to take on leadership in the foundation. And so where a for-profit enterprise could start to create some wedges in the family, the family business of giving away money to helping people brings us together in ways that I think we never could have imagined before.
2: One of the things at Stuller, you, you know, your whole career had been with natural diamonds, what are now called natural diamonds, what were uh-huh. used to be uh-huh. just called diamonds. And then you started introducing Lab Grown and Stuller became a huge, huge player in Lab Grown. Did you have trepidation about that? And how did you find that business different from the
3: standard business? Well, let me tell you quickly how it evolved. So it started in 2012 and there was a news article that we saw a couple of us had seen that IGI Antwerp had discovered that hundreds of diamonds that were submitted to it by one particular party turned out to all be lab-grown undisclosed lab grown. And so this kind of hit everyone like a shock. If this is out there and IGA just caught this, there could be a lot more undisclosed lab grown diamonds out there. This was 2012. So we did at Stoller the best we could do, which was checking every diamond in the inventory larger than 20 points using very rudimentary shortwave UV screening technology, very simple. And out of I don't know, five or six thousand diamonds, realized that there were 30 that were potentially lab-grown. We sent them all out to an outside lab, and they all came back as natural. Okay, so we felt like we dodged the bullet. But from that point on, we began implementing increasingly more stringent screening protocols, understanding that, look, we don't want to sell undisclosed lab-grown diamonds. The Federal Trade Commission says you have to correctly represent the product that you're selling, but really, it's the right thing to do, even if the FTC doesn't say that. So by 2017, Stoller was screwed all the diamonds coming through. As the technology improved and became available, we adopted it, brought it into our systems. And once we felt confident that we could discern if a diamond was natural or lab-grown, did we feel confident that we could introduce lab-grown diamonds into the merchandising mix? Because we knew that with the right processes, we could keep them separate. And Understanding that there was a market demand, we sought to meet market demand. Someone said to me soon after that, Well, what would your grandfather say if he knew that you were selling lab grown diamonds? And I'll tell you exactly what he did say about it because Zales confronted the issue in the early 50s when the first diamonds were grown synthetically. And it led Zales to go on a diversification track, but sporting goods stores, drug stores, Furniture stores, airport newsstands to diversify its holdings in the fear that the jewelry business could somehow go away if diamonds were being mass produced like this. Ultimately, they came to the conclusion that they're in the jewelry business, not the diamond business. And it's about how someone chooses to adorn themselves with a piece of jewelry, and we're not going to pass judgment on their decision to do that one way or the other. If they want to wear a piece of jewelry with a ruby, natural or synthetic, a moissanite, a natural diamond, a pearl, whatever, a lab-grown diamond, simply there to meet market demand. That's all. No judgments.
1: I'm curious, you know, what is your new role all about at uh, Hill & Co.? It,
3: it's bringing a, a diamond-specific focus to uh, the Hill & Co. team and working with companies to uh, maximize, really, the profitability. And so that covers several things. One, it's smart inventory management, the old paradigm of the diamond business was always, well, if you just leave the goods in the safe, then inevitably they'll go up in value when you make money. Well, that hasn't really been the case for a while. And so it takes a different type of strategy to look at inventory management than it did 20, 25 years ago. So bringing some best practices uh, to bear for diamond companies, for jewelry companies, how to capitalize, make money on your inventory position. How hopefully not to get hurt in a downward market, understanding the supply issues, understanding that as an industry, we have to keep moving forward to supply chain transparency with things like the sanctions against Russian origin diamonds coming into play really fast. How is the industry going to understand the supply chain dynamics to work their way through that? What are the opportunities to solve that problem? It might be some blockchain programs that are out there, whether it's De Beers Tracer or I Trace It or some of the others, solutions are there. So it's helping. Jewelers understand what are some of the things to watch out for. What are the, some of the opportunities uh, along the way? Taking a strategic look at where the market's going, and again, how to you know, maximize your profitability, whether it's an upward market or a downward market. There's opportunities in all of those, and I love that stuff.
1: Well, so I guess on that note, what what are you thinking about 24, and what are yeah look into your crystal ball and give us give us a peek is it given the election years are we going to continue to be a bit soft
3: i'm i'm sensing that there's going to be a level of modest growth it seems like the economy is looking a little bit better lately we'll see how the year develops but i think in any event uh, my instinct is don't speculate be quick to react as markets change you know maybe you won't capitalize and make every last dollar that you possibly could but you'll also minimize your downside risk. So, and that's a big part of how to play this game. I'm going into 2024 with cautious optimism, and I think it's going to be okay. Play it safely, play it a little bit conservatively, and I think it'll be okay. Okay,
2: great.
1: Thank you so much, Stanley.
3: My pleasure. Thank you.
2: Legendary Stanley Zale.
1: Great conversation to kind of set the tenor for 2024. Really appreciate your insights, and we hope our paths cross soon, maybe at JCK.
3: Looking forward to it. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Riley McCaskill. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. Any views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the opinion of JCK, its management, or its advertisers. Thanks for listening. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.